0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2.
1: And finally, before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, would you join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 5, and 22, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling Place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal. "'Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb "'down the middle of the great street of the city. "'On each side of the river stood the tree of life, "'bearing twelve crops of fruit, "'yielding its fruit every month. "'And the leaves of the tree "'are for the healing of the nations. "'No longer will there be any curse. "'The throne of God and of the Lamb "'will be in the city, "'and his servants will serve him. "'They will see his face, "'and his name will be on their foreheads. "'There will be no more night.' They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. We know you could be anywhere this morning. We're grateful that you chose to be here with us. And before we get into this morning's message, I'd like to pray, and I encourage you to pray with me, seeking God's help. Father, your words a light to us in a world that's filled with an awful lot of darkness, uh, a lot of fog, a lot of confusion. It's so easy to be overwhelmed at times, to, to get either angry or apathetic and just check out. There's so much stirring these days, and I pray as we come to your word this morning, we trust that your spirit, he is at work in our midst right now. I pray that you would give us greater clarity about what reality really is, what you're doing in our world, the promises you've made to us, And then we might leave here as people with a greater hope, greater courage, as we seek to follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today is the last week in a nine-week series that we've entitled Sacred. And so the last eight weeks, we've been studying the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, in order to understand God's design and creation of the world. Our heart in this was to to recover some core teachings— of the Christian faith that have often been neglected, overlooked, or sometimes even forgotten. And I think it's really helpful. I've really enjoyed the series of looking back, understanding God's design, of really considering the goodness and givenness of everything that, that we have on this earth. But when you study the New Testament, you'll see that the New Testament authors, they actually they spend a little time looking back, but they spend most of their time looking forward. The New Testament is a book... About hope. And so today, to wrap this series up, we're gonna look at the, spend one week looking at the last two chapters of the Bible, kind of bridge the whole thing. And really, we're gonna be talking about what a lot of people would refer to as the end times. I don't really like that phrase because uh, end times discussions gets derailed oftentimes by questions like, "Who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? Is it a UPC symbol or the new ones that you scan with your phone with the camera?" Uh, right. The, the end times it stirs a lot of fear. Like what you hear people talking about end times, and usually there are also people who are stockpiling food, weapons, and water. And what we see in this text is at the end times, the end of history, it shouldn't stir anxiety in us as followers of Jesus. It really should fill us with hope, excitement, and courage. And so we're going to do a flyover of these two chapters, and we're going to look at them both under three headings. First, we're going to talk about the vision, and the vision John received, and what that teaches us about this world. Second, we're going to talk about the city, And what that teaches us about our work and our labors on this earth. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the throne. And what that teaches us about our hope. But we're going to start with the vision. What Revelation is, is John was given a vision from God. And he's recounting this vision to the church. And in this vision, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And he sees this city. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, those two words, coming down, have the power to transform not just how you understand the Bible or the end times, but really how you understand all of reality. I know that might seem like a big statement, but I mean it. I think for most of us, uh, especially if you grew up around Christianity, we kind of came to believe, it was either taught explicitly or implicitly, that Christianity, when you die, you go to heaven, where you live with God forever. So most of us understood. Now, what's interesting, when you actually study the New Testament, it doesn't say all that much about heaven, at least not as we conceive of it. There's not all that many passages. You actually never will find a passage that says, when you die, you go to heaven. You actually have to piece it together. And so in Luke, Jesus is on the cross, and you know the thief next to him says, remember me uh, when you enter your kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's, that's one window in. Paul tells us in Philippians 1, he's like, I don't know if it's better to keep living or to die and be with the Lord. To die today and be with the Lord is better by far. And so heaven is real, don't get me wrong, and it's going to be wonderful, but in the Bible, heaven is not the end of the story. Stage one of the afterlife, it's not the end. What's really interesting, the only in-depth picture we're given of heaven in the Bible is found in Revelation 6. And Revelation, if you've ever read it before, it's a strange book with lots of images, it's because it's... Uh, a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And so there's parts of it that are literal and other parts of it that are figurative, that there's images and pictures that are meant to stir our imagination. So this passage, there's a little bit of both of that going on. But John tells us in Revelation 6 that when he opened the fifth seal, this is a picture from heaven, okay, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had been maintained. These are martyrs in heaven. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. That's an intense passage. If you had an image of heaven being floating on clouds, playing harps, and angelic babies around you, and then you read this one, which is people who've been martyred for their faith crying out, In heaven, how long, Lord? How long do we have to wait? What are they waiting for? They're waiting for God to bring justice to this earth. This might be challenging, but I want you to to hang in there with me. Because the typical Christian understanding of the afterlife, you die, you go to heaven, be with God forever. But what the Bible says is that when we die, we go to heaven, but heaven is not forever. We die, we go to heaven with God, and there we wait for God to transform this earth, remake this earth. It's right here in the text, and you will see a lot of parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, but the very first verse of the Bible, we're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here at the very end of the Bible, John's given a vision where he sees a new heavens, and a new earth. It's a recreation that John is depicting here. And that word new, it can also mean renewed. It's the same word that's used uh, in Second Corinthians 5, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And I think that's actually a really helpful image, because when you become a Christian, are you a new creation? Absolutely, right? Yes. But are you also some still the same kind of, in a way, of who you were? Yeah. you got the same brain, same heart, same body, same story. You're who you were, but you've been renewed. You've been transformed. And the picture we're giving, given in the Bible is that on the last day, God is going to transform our world. He's going to renew it. Second Peter 3 says he's going to do it through fire, but he's going to take this world in its present state and he's going to refine it and make it sinless, whole, beautiful, and perfect. If you'll notice, even in the text, the voice coming from the throne doesn't say, Behold, I am making all new things. The voice from the throne cries out, Behold, I am making all things new christian your great hope is not that god will evacuate you from this earth to heaven but instead that he will transform this earth into what it was designed to be and actually an even greater vision of what it was in genesis 1 and 2 here's how one pastor put it he said this contrary to popular the popular saying heaven is not our home earth is not earth as it is now but earth as it will be in the future. Our hope isn't for another place, but for another time. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we go to heaven when we die, but we don't stay there. If Jesus is a ticket to heaven, as the preacher says, then he's a round-trip ticket, not a one-way, because at the resurrection, we come back. At the end of history, God will take our world... And he will so transform it. He will take the good and make it even better. But he will transform it from its present state of sin, rebellion, disease, and death. And he will make it beautiful, glorious, and perfect. It's probably a different story than most of us heard. But that's what the Bible teaches. And I would argue it's a better story. That story helps us make sense of this earth, because if you are honest Christian, there are things that you love here, and that's okay, that's good. I actually think that's a God-given thing. You know, we read passages in the Bible that say, do not love the world or anything in the world, and we think that means, well, I shouldn't like or enjoy anything here. But in passages like those, First John, the world is being used in the sense of talking about sinful patterns and structures, how humanity's sin manifests throughout all of us, so it could be greed or lust or racism or things like that. The New Testament writers are saying, don't love that part of the world, but they're not saying, hate the earth, hate God's creation. It's been one of our themes in this series. The world, God created it. It was good. It's stained by sin. But the promise is that God is going to redeem the world. And so if you are brought up with this mentality that it's all going to burn and the physical and the material is bad, but the spiritual and the ethereal is good, that's just not biblical. God created the earth. He created material things. And he's going to redeem material things. We are going to lay this body down, but then we're going to pick up resurrected bodies and the new heavens and the new earth. There's a million implications of that. I'll just let your minds wander. We'll move on to the next point. But the vision. The vision. Heaven coming down to earth. I mean, this is the Lord's Prayer, right? On earth as it is in heaven. Then John gets into the details of his vision. And he sees a city. And... What are we to make of this city? Well, like I said, there's a lot of overlap, or connections, I should say, between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 2, we're told there were gold and onyx in the Garden of Eden. And then you get to the end of the Bible, and what do we see? Gold and onyx in God's renewed creation. Genesis 2, the tree of life is in the middle of the garden. Revelation 22, the tree of life is in the middle of the new creation. It's obvious that the angel of the Lord is giving John a vision of a renewed Eden. There's a connection between the two. But what's so interesting, I think it's interesting, Genesis 2, we're told that a river flowed through the Garden of Eden. And then here in Revelation 22, John tells us that the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street. Of the city. In Genesis 2, Eden's a garden. In Revelation 22, the new Eden is a city. It's like a garden city. It's beautiful, there's trees and there's a river, but it's a city, streets and buildings. What does this imagery communicate to us? Let me ask you another question if you were here paying attention. What was the original work that God entrusted to Adam and Eve? Do you remember? Fill the earth and subdue it. We preached a couple of sermons on this. You know, Pastor Jonathan, build beautiful things. We talked about how the earth at creation, it was good, but it wasn't perfect. It was actually somewhat untamed and it was teeming with possibility. And God said to humanity, I want you to take all of the goodness here and I want you to bring order out of the disorder. And I want you to bring beauty to it and structure and make this a place where human beings can flourish. Here at the end of history, what do we see? That that's happened. That the garden has been turned into a city. Now, who did that? Who did that work? Well, God, right? He's the master builder and architect. But... I believe, and I believe the scriptures teach, that humans also play a role in the creation of this new city. Andy Crouch, in his book, Culture Making, he points to Revelation 21, this text, where John, in describing this heavenly city, writes, The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it, and the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. That's interesting to consider. This new city, people are bringing things into it. This echoes the vision we see in Isaiah 60 of the new heavens and the new earth. In Isaiah 60, this city is described as being filled with domesticated animals, ships, precious minerals and jewels, timber and lumber. It's described as being filled with all sorts of things that humans have cultivated with their own hands. Miroslav Volf, who's a professor of theology at Yale, writes this, The noble products of human ingenuity, whatever is beautiful, true, and good in human cultures, will be cleansed from impurity, perfected, and transfigured to become a part of God's new creation. They will form the building materials from which the glorified world will be made. I mean, we're kind of entering into a little bit of speculative territory, but it's grounded in the Word, and this is fascinating to think about. What this means is that the new heavens and the new earth are probably going to be much more real and, in a lot of ways, much more familiar than any of us ever imagined. It's going to be all of the good and none of the bad, and the good's going to be better than it is today. Even the imagery of a city. Think about a city. Are cities good or bad? Don't answer. (laughs) They're both, right? Cities have some of the the greatest parts of humanity. Like the achievements and the beauty and the art and the culture. I mean, cities are amazing. And yet cities also have some of the worst parts of humanity. Violence, crime, poverty, homelessness, addictions. Addictions. Well, in this new heavenly city, it's going to be filled with all of the good and none of the bad. Now, what does all of this mean for us today? I think one thing it means is that your life and your work and your labors here on this earth really matter. I mean, Paul says as much. 1 Corinthians 15, it's the longest treatment of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament and it's so dense you could spend months studying it and I encourage you to because it's a life altering chapter but Paul basically his argument is Jesus rose from the dead so too one day we are going to rise from the grave and then at the end all of creation is going to be resurrected there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and it's this long drawn out thing it's Very complicated. And then at the very end, he says, in light of this, in light of the fact that our God is a God who resurrects things from the grave, Jesus, his son, us, and eventually all of creation. What do we do with that? Paul says, therefore, in light of this, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If you were taught that all of creation, everything, this earth, it's all going to burn, then of course our labor is in vain. But if our God is a God who is going to redeem and renew all things, that means our labor in the Lord is never in vain. Here's how one theologian put it He said, commenting on this verse Christian, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. Every act of love and gratitude and kindness... Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. How? I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to work. But I do know that Paul says your labor is not in vain. I do know God says, behold, I'm making all things new. And the implication here is is that we, our, our work here on this earth, it really, really matters. What we do on earth really, really matters. And so the version of Christianity that a lot of us were sold was basically, starts in Genesis 3, ends somewhere in Romans, I guess. You're a sinner, Jesus died for you, you go to heaven when you die, and then everything's going to burn. Now there's, there's some truth in that, not all the way. But the biblical vision is, no, God created the earth, declared it a good, sin corrupted it. Jesus came to redeem us from our sin and, as Paul says in Romans 8, to set all of creation, which is in bondage to sin right now, to set it free. And one day he's going to redeem all things and make them all new. And so if you believe, you know, it's all going to burn and God's just going to get us out of here, then what are our lives? Our time on this earth is a waiting room, right? Just killing time. God's going to make all things new, then it means our work and our lives really matter. What we do really matters. Because it will somehow mysteriously carry over, and the other thing we see in this text, another mind-blowing thing, Revelation 22, 5. In this garden city... We're told that they, and they there are the disciples of Jesus. They will reign forever and ever. Now, of course, God's going to be reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. But this passage passage, passage says that we, as followers of Jesus, we are going to be reigning in the new heavens and new earth as well. Dallas Willard, brilliant thinker, Christian professor at USC, I believe. Uh, He used to ask his students, what are you going to be doing 10,000 years from now? According to John and the other New Testament writers, 10,000 years from now, we're going to be reigning in God's new creation. Willard goes on to say, and it's kind of cheesy, but you'll remember it. He says, All of our life right here on earth right now, it's training for reigning. We are being trained and growing up into the kind of people who one day can reign and will reign over God's new creation. And what this means, it's not just what we do that really matters right here and now, it's who you're becoming that really matters. The virtues you're developing, the wisdom, your holiness, your love of God, those things will carry over. We are right now, you know, at the beginning stages of God's training program for reigning over all. It's fascinating to think about what it means. Our life and our labors on this earth really matter. So the city or the vision. God's going to redeem and renew all things. The city means what we do right now matters because it will carry over in some mysterious way. Lastly, the last thing is the throne, the vision of the throne. John writes in describing his vision, he said, "I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then in chapter 22, he tells us that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face. And his names will be on their foreheads. In Revelation, that phrase, names on foreheads, that's, that's Revelation's way of saying, on that day, People will be known for who they truly are, who they truly belong to, what their real character is. But the big point is that on that day, the last day, which will be the first day of eternity, God is going to be with his people. And we're told they will see his face. Now, that's a very important phrase in the Bible. If you've ever heard the benediction, you know, may the Lord bless you and keep you and what? Make his face to shine upon you this I would argue is every human being's greatest longing is to see God's face you remember what Moses really really wanted from the Lord can I just see you kind of known you, I've heard of you, we've interacted but I want to see you and what does God say sorry you can't if you saw my face you would die You've got to put a veil on. There's got to be some kind of barrier between us. David, the Psalms, what does he declare? The one thing that he would want over anything else? To behold the beauty of the Lord. And here we're told that on the last day, we're going to see God's face. How? The answer is, Kind of right there in the text, because the throne is not just called the throne of God, it's called the throne of God and of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And it's because in between the tree of life in Genesis and the tree of life in Revelation stood a tree of death that Jesus Christ climbed upon. And if you remember, Isaiah said, Cursed is anyone that's hung upon a tree, And so humanity turns from God, rebels, abandons the tree of life. And what does God do? He doesn't wipe us out. Instead, he sends his son to take the curse, to climb the tree of death, so that we won't experience the curse anymore. I mean, that is explicit right here. In Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse because of the work of Christ. We're no longer going to have to look at God through veiled faces, through through mirrors dimly. We're going to see him face to face as he truly is. And this is our soul's greatest longing. This is your your soul's greatest longing. You, you think you're going to be satisfied in so many things. You, We were not created to be satisfied in anything less than God himself. And I say all of this because... I love thinking about the new heavens and the new earth. Like, are we going to be able to fly, or is gravity still going to be as real as it is now? Like, all sorts of things. And it's wonderful to think about what would this world be like with no sin, and God's here. But a lot of times we can think about the new heavens and the new earth as like, it's going to be like earth, but not as bad. No, no, no. What makes the new heavens and the new earth wonderful and glorious is that God is with us. It's not just our standard of living is improved. It's that we see him and we know him and we're not afraid of him. That picture in Genesis 1 and 2 that just as Adam and Eve used to walk with him in the cool of the day, we will experience something like that and we won't be ashamed. We won't be trying to cover ourselves up. The curse will be removed and we're told on that day he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Anyone looking forward to that? <laughs> this orders, there's some good things in it, but come quickly, Lord. Ready for it to be done. But I love the picture of God on that day. We have, you know, there's, there's pictures in the Bible of God's might and power, but we're told on that day, he's going to be wiping tears from people's eyes. I have this image, you know, I've got little kids at home, and when storms roll in, it can be kind of scary, and I just have this image that God is like a father with his kids, and it's like a, a raging storm, it's pounding all around them, and the kids are crying, and they're overwhelmed, and then the storm dies down, and the father grabs his daughter or son, wipes the tears from their eyes, and says, it's over. The bad stuff's all over. From here on out, everything's going to be okay. That's the promise we have, Christian. And it's incredible. And yet tomorrow's Monday, right? You've got to go to work. This week's Thanksgiving, which means a lot of Family. With all of the cultural hot button issues means probably a lot of conversations you're not real excited about having, or maybe you're too excited about having. I don't know. I'm like, what do we do with this? What do we do with a passage that's great and mind blowing and transforming? It's a passage like this. How does it speak to our life today? Well, this is where it's important to remember that John, who had this vision, he was a pastor. And the Lord gave him this vision, and then he decided to give it to his church. It's also important to remember that at the time John wrote this letter, his, his congregation was experiencing tremendous suffering and persecution unlike anything they'd ever experienced before. See, so it was at the time that this was written, it was during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, who was the first to enact widespread persecution of Christians. And so John's writing this letter, not to seminary students, no offense if you are. He's writing writing it to people who've just lost their homes, maybe lost friends, maybe lost family members. He's writing it to people who are afraid of being arrested, to people who will shortly after this be arrested, be impaled on stakes, boiled alive, fed to lions. And he's writing to them saying, yeah, it might be bad. But don't forget the hope you have, Christian. Now, there's so many stories about the Christians as they're being fed to the lions for the amusement of the Romans, and they're singing hymns to God as their limbs are being torn off. Where do you get that kind of resolve and faith? It's because they knew, like, this earth as it is now, it's okay. But the future that's promised to us the lasting city, as Hebrews says, that's coming, makes all of this leavable. Humans are are hope shaped creatures. We are hope. Sh- what we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present. Right. In just about a month, there's Christmas. If you've got little kids in their home. Like their behavior might start to change if there's something they really want for Christmas in hope that they will get it. It's just how we are. And yet in our day and age, and even in the church today, we don't, we don't think about hope a lot. You know, faith, hope, and love. We talk about faith a lot. We talk about love some hope we don't know what to do with. And part of that's because a lot of us have had fairly easy lives when you consider human history. Not saying all of you. I don't know your story. We haven't cultivated hope because life here is pretty good. God wants us to be a people who are looking to the future of the hope we have. And that that might serve as ballast that stabilizes us. You know, when we're living in such strange, confusing, challenging times. The world feels like it's shaking. It's easy, you know, to, to uh, talk a doom scroll on the Internet or just doom binge on cable news. And I wonder sometimes as Christians, like, if that's what we're feeding on, no wonder we're so angry and anxious and uptight. But what if we were feeding on the promises of God? Think of how calm we would be, how stable we would be, how hopeful we would be, how joyful we would be. And so, Christian, my word for you is don't grow weary. Don't grow weary in doing good. There is a harvest that is promised to us. Claim these promises. Let them be your guide. This is how history ends. This is what God's promised to us. And he never goes back on his promises. As we move to the Lord's table... Communion, it's it's a little almost kind of like drama that Christ gave us. He did it, then he told us to do it, and it it was the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it, and he said, This is my body broken for you. He took a cup, this is the cup of my blood poured out for you, and he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so the Lord's supper is a chance for us to remember Christ's death for our sins. But Jesus also said, I will not drink the fruit of this vine until I come again. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like Jesus is saying, I've got a great vintage of wine that I am not going to uncork until that last day. And we're told on that last day there's going to be a wedding feast. And we're going to eat and drink. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you. We have the little cups of communion prepackaged. There's baskets Uh, Filled. If you don't have one, if you're a Christian, I encourage you, you can tear the top off and you can take part in the wafer as you remember the body of Christ that's broken for you. And then you can take part in the grape juice. Symbolizes the wine, the blood of Christ that was poured out for you. This meal it reminds us of where we've come from, of what God's done for us, but also what He's promised to us. So, if you're here and you're a Christian, I, I encourage you claim the promises of God in your life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to turn, to put your faith in Jesus. He died for your sins, but He's also preparing a place for all who trust in Him, who want to live in His kingdom, and He invites all. The door is open to all. I want to invite you to walk through. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jamieson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.